Children, you are now dismissed for your class. Uh, you guys all may be seated as well. Someone asked me why I don't wear fall colors, and I said I do wear fall colors. It's just black and gold <laughs> are the fall colors I wear. Well, let us, uh, let us pray, and then we will continue in our series in uh, the life of Elijah. Father, we thank you for your love. I can't stop thanking you. Every time I pray, that is the first thing I pray, because I know I don't deserve it. We don't deserve your love. Father, we pray that you will be with us this morning as we open up your word. We ask, Spirit of the living God, to come fresh and bring fresh revelation to us as we read for our own lives for change, not just for education. For the Word of God is living and active and breathing and speaks into our life even now, despite the many, many years that it has been written long ago. Bless us and strengthen us this morning. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see. In your name, amen. Amen. Many of you may know uh, George Mueller, who was a man of deep faith. George Mueller was a man who followed hard after the Lord in his life, and he was one of those guys that just you want to be like as a Christian. He had an orphanage, and he would constantly be faith-filled, just believing that God would take care of this orphanage. And there's many, many stories of his faith-filled life that you can read in his biography, but my, my favorite story of faith comes when George Mueller had no money and no food for these kids. And he woke up and he brought the kids to the table. And he said, kids, let's thank God for his provision. They had nothing, no money, no food at the table. And after they were done praying, a baker rushed into the house, into the, into the orphanage, and he said, George, I couldn't sleep last night. I woke up at 2 in the morning, and I baked like crazy because I knew that I needed to make you some bread. Wow. He had never asked for the bread, but the bread came. And they prayed again. They had nothing to drink. And he said, Lord, we thank you for your provision. And all the kids prayed for the same thing. And a milkman runs into, into the orphanage and says, my, my cart broke down, and I can't get this milk anywhere. It's going to spoil. Can you use it? Yes. Yes, we can. Thank you. And many of you might have heard that story before, but, but George's faith was one of those things that encouraged everyone around him, strengthened the other's faith as he spent time with them. And, and the thing that we need to look at today as we look at the story of Elijah is that he was a man of faith as well. But George Mueller wasn't like this super special rock star Christian. You and I have access to the same faith that George had, the same faith that Elijah had. But too often we are comfortable with a weak, anemic faith. We're too comfortable with just kind of going through the motions of our faith, a shallow faith that we are satisfied with. But our desire for shallow faith is detrimental to growing in deeper faith. We are each and every one of us as believers called to a deeper faith. 
we are to consistently grow as believers, where we see in 1 Thessalonians that we are to be sanctified through and through, that it is a continual process. It's not something that we just remain stagnant on, but it's something that we consistently grow in. Our faith should continue to grow. We should walk in deeper and deeper and deeper faith as we move forward. If we desire deeper faith, we would walk towards it. And my hope is that as we talk about deeper faith in the life of Elijah, that there will be a hunger that is birthed within all of our hearts, my own included. Because as I have said often, when I develop a sermon, I often have to preach it first to myself because it is consistently just soaking within me as it comes out for us as a church. We need to desire deeper faith. And I believe that this part of Elijah's narrative answers this question. How can we grow deeper in our relationship with the Lord? If we're called to a deeper faith, if we're called to continue to grow, how can we grow in our relationship with the Lord in this faith? So if you'd open up your scriptures with me, we're going to be in 1 Kings verses, uh, chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and then we're going to reread James 5, 17 through 18 to remind us of something specific. But if you have your Bibles with you, please open those. If not, you can read it on the screen. Those of you are online, it'll be on your screen as well. The word of the Lord, 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son." For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. James 5, 17 through 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
It's important that we remind ourselves of the James passage because it says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. God never does anything by accident. He never writes anything in the scripture that's meaningless. It is important that we understand that James was telling the church and us that Elijah was not some super special person in the fact that he had faith that we can have the same type of faith that Elijah himself had. If you remember last week, he was led to a place called Cherith. It was a brook, and the ravens would come and bring him food. After he had made this big pronouncement to King Ahab and Jezebel, the horrible queen and king of Israel who were making worship spaces for Baal, an awful king, an awful God that this king was worshiping now and encouraging Israel to worship as well, taking the focus off of the Lord. And Elijah calls him out on it. And God immediately says, go to Cherith and be there. I will give you drink from the brook and the ravens will bring you food. It was a very specific place, a very specific time, a very specific answer to how he would be provided for. And now the brook has dried up, as we remember. And here we see Elijah at a moment where he does not complain. He knew he had prayed for drought to happen. He had prayed for the rain to stop. And he knew that this brook drying up was actually an answer to his prayer. So God, in that moment, says, now go to Zarephath. Go to Zarephath. And I believe that we'll see five lessons on how we can deepen our faith and build a stronger relationship with the Lord from Elijah's life. And the first lesson he gives us is the lesson of trust. Because deeper faith is developed through greater trust. Deeper faith is developed through greater trust. It's important that as we look at Scripture, we understand the contextual nature and the geographical nature of what is being said. Because to us, going from Cherith to Zarephath, what does that mean? If you don't understand where that is in distance and how that gets to the, the, from one place to the other and what that would look like for Elijah, this, this statement doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And often we read these narratives and we say, oh, that was really cool. He went from Cherith to, to Zarephath. But if you were to look at the geographical layout from Cherith to Zarephath, you would see that God is asking him to walk a hundred miles in the desert in the middle of a drought. That's a lot different than just saying, oh, he walked from one city to the other city. And you might even think, oh, he rode on a camel. No, he walked a hundred miles through the desert from Cherith to Zarephath. And God promised Elijah that when you get there, which means that even though it's going to be a difficult task, you will get to Zarephath. When you get there, a widow will provide for you. He had to trust that he was not going to die in the desert in the middle of a drought. I don't know if you've ever been to a desert or ever been to a place that is hot and dry and there's no water. Imagine doing that by yourself for a hundred miles. That is a no fun zone for him. But he arises and he goes. Now, 
Also, it's important that we understand more geography in this passage because where Sidon is, that is Jezebel's hometown. That is where Jezebel grew up. It is a Gentile space. It is not a space where you would have a Jew, especially a prophet, who's running away from Jezebel to go to her backyard. And so not only is he saying, hey, I want you to walk 100 miles in the desert in the middle of a drought. I want you to go to a city that everyone knows who Jezebel is and everyone knows that, uh, you know, they can easily contact her. You're going into the, the enemy's camp after you've walked 100 miles in the desert. But we see a very important thing. It simply says, so he arose. And also, not only do we need to understand geography, it's important that we also understand the linguistics of what's being said with these names of these places. Zarephath comes from a Hebrew verb that means to melt or to smelt. Interestingly, in noun form, it means crucible. So, hey, I want you to go, arise, walk a hundred miles through the desert, Go to the backyard of your greatest enemy who could murder you in five seconds. And I'm going to send you to a place called the Crucible. How many of you would sign up for that trip? I wouldn't. I'm like, "Eh, really? Can I just stay here and you bring more water and more ravens? But he arises and he goes. He trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord to get him there. He trusted the Lord that there would be provision. He trusted the Lord that when God said, you will get there, he believed him. And so he arose. I would probably complain a little bit. I would ask some questions. I would push back on God a little bit. But Elijah does not raise any questions. It simply says, so he arose. Now, when he goes into a Gentile village as well, he is, God is saying to Elijah, not only are you going to go into the crucible, not only are you going to walk 100 miles, not only are you going to go to a Gentile town, but a Gentile widow is going to take care of you. A Gentile. Now, we don't understand the full nature of this nationalistic problem, but a Gentile taking care of a Jew was not something that Jews would normally allow. But God had proven through the provision of the dirty, nasty ravens that he would provide, and it would work out. And so, Elijah arose, and he went. Elijah understood that what God had already done, he will do again. Elijah looked at the promise of God, saying, I will provide for you a cherith, and he allowed that moment in his life, that promise kept, to encourage a deeper faith, a deeper trust. Because going to cherith was simple, compared to being asked to go to Zarephath. This was a bigger ask than going to Cherith. And you and I need to allow the Lord's past promise-keeping to encourage trust for today's promises. I think it's easy for us to forget what God has already done. This is part of the song where it says, Raise my Ebenezer. It is a reminder of what God has already done. 
It's saying God was our help and God will be our help. So when you forget the promises of God, take a look at the Ebenezer, this big stone that has been placed in the middle of this space so that you can remember and never forget what God has already done. And so what God said he would do, he did. So what God says he will do, he will do. He will do it again. Allow the Lord's past promise keeping to encourage the trust for today's promises. So the first lesson is the lesson of trust. The second lesson he gives us is the lesson of humility. Deeper faith grows within the humble heart. Deeper faith grows within the humble heart. God says to Elijah, go. He trusts God and he goes. He arose, no questions, and he even allows a Gentile widow to take care of him. Again, we had talked about the nationalistic difference and how this would be one of those, ah, this is a dirty, wrong thing to allow to happen. But she wasn't just a Gentile. She was a widow. Now, if you understand the law or even look at the New Testament, the men in the community, they were the ones who were supposed to take care of the widows. It was Elijah's job, essentially, to take care of this widow. And God says, nope, the widow's going to take care of you. That would have been so difficult in this, this moment for him. This, this could have been a moment where his pride pushed back. Okay, I could trust you through the desert. Okay, I can trust you to get me there. But a widow? A Gentile widow? God, what are you asking of me? You, you know I'm supposed to be the one to take care of her, not her taking care of me. But he does not allow his pride to hinder him from going. See, Elijah was a powerful man. He had just confronted the king. And here he was, going to a Gentile widow to be taken care of. Chuck Swindoll, I, I love his book on Elijah. If you ever want a devotional book, pick up Chuck Swindoll's book on Elijah. He says this in that book, The poor widow was going to provide for this famous prophet of the Lord who stood before the king. This is a wonderful reminder that is often the most humbling tasks that prepare us for higher, greater tasks. If God is going to use us for greater things, we have got to walk in humility. We have got to walk in humility. He simply arose and went. I think one of the greatest hindrances to all of us as believers and the human race in general is pride. In Romans 12, 3, it says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And in Luke 14, 7 through 11, we see Jesus giving this parable of the table. And he says to the people that are listening, because he saw the Pharisees fighting for the greatest seat at the table, he said, listen, when it comes to a table, a meal, don't ever try to take the place of highest honor. Because if you're not the greatest person in the room, you will be asked to move down. And in that society, that's an embarrassing thing. And by the time the person with the highest honor would come to the table and replace the person who put themselves where they thought they should be, 
There would only be space at the end of the table, the place for the lowest of the low. And so it would be an embarrassing, embarrassing moment. He says, rather, put yourself at the lowest place, and the honor of being moved up would be great. You know, while I was studying through this and I was, I was listening to a devotional that I, I do, and I shared this with the men at men's ministry last night, or yesterday morning rather, and I was reading through this, this passage on, on Mark where the sons of Zebedee look at Jesus and say, when you come into your glory, let us sit at your right and on your left. And Jesus rebukes them. And I felt as I was reading through that, this Luke passage came right to mind, and I read through it, and the Holy Spirit said to me as I was reading the Scripture, your greatest issue in your life is trying to put yourself at the head of the table. Your greatest problem, the reason why you struggle the most in your life is because you think that you deserve the highest place at the table or a higher place than you should be. Uh, That's a moment where you get a gut punch. I was on my knees about that for a while because I knew it was true. Here's also something that's true. Arrogance stunts the believer's growth while humility waters the soil of spiritual growth. If we are walking in arrogance, we will never grow. We will stay stagnant or regress. And this is an important thing for us to recognize. The Christian faith is not about us. Isn't that crazy? The Lord blesses us and brings us salvation, and He gives us gifts and He transforms us to do His work, not our work. And the moment we recognize that, you see in the scripture, Jesus says that we are slaves to sin, but when we come into the kingdom, we become slaves to Christ. And that's a much freer, much more beautiful, wonderful place to be, but we are also called to do the will of Christ rather than the will of ourselves. When we walk in arrogance and do what we want to, that's a deeper, horrible slavery than we could ever imagine. But slavery to Christ, walking in His will, is the greatest blessing of our life. If you look at 1 Corinthians, it talks about how the spiritual gifts are for today, that the the Holy Spirit fills us with gifts, and there's many gifts that you can read through. But we quickly see that the reason for those gifts is to edify the entire body of Christ, not to edify ourselves. The third lesson that Elijah gives us in how to grow in our relationship with the Lord and have deeper faith is the lesson of appointments. Deeper faith gives greater awareness to divine appointments. Deeper faith gives greater awareness to divine appointments. Elijah was told by the Lord, you will have a divine appointment with a Gentile widow who I've already set aside for her to take care of you. And we see that as soon as Elijah comes into the city, he notices a woman gathering sticks. And he knows immediately this is the widow. You wonder, how did he know? How could he possibly know, A, that she was a widow? I mean, it's just some random woman gathering sticks. You wouldn't think, oh, she must be a widow. 
Have you ever just gone into the store and saw someone shopping for green beans and said, that's a widow? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Because the Lord gave him a divine understanding of who this woman was. He immediately knew because he was obeying the Lord, he was trusting the Lord, he was walking in humility, he knew that this was the person that he was to meet. And he asks her for water. Now you might think that that's kind of rude where he comes into the city, sees some random woman and is like, give me water! But I mean, just understand, he walked for 100 miles in the desert, in the drought, and she probably saw this guy, <sighs> right? It wasn't just like he walked up like he was totally hydrated and asked this person for a water glass. He was probably like heaving and sweating and probably beat down from the sun. And she looked at him and was like, oh yeah, you need some water. I'm going to go get you water. And she ran to get him water. But then he asks her to do something kind of crazy, to cook him a meal, even though that was the last of what she had. We, we need to, to recognize and understand that there are two levels of time, and Scripture reveals these two levels of time. There is chronos, which is chronological time, which, you know, we started the day at, say, you woke up at 6 a.m., and now we're here at 11.28 a.m., that's chronological. It moves from time to time to time. Seconds tick off, minutes, days, years. You get it. But in the scripture, there's also a, a time called kairos, which is chirotic time. God sets aside seasons and moments specifically for us. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who like, wow, that's exactly what I needed? Or you felt like, I need to pray for this person and call them and let them know I'm praying for them. And they're like, that's exactly what I needed. That was a chirotic moment where God was putting the time and the seasons together for greater blessing and edification. And every day, God has these times and seasons set aside for us. But so often, we miss them. Just like I missed that moment that I talked about last week at the Giant Eagle checkout when the Lord put it on my heart to talk about this person, about Jesus, and I didn't do it. That was a chirotic, divine appointment. And I knew that God had set that up, but I ignored it. And so sometimes we might recognize those moments, but we, like myself, might fail to live into that moment. But because of Elijah's intimacy with God, because of Elijah's deeper faith and trust and humility, he knew who this woman was. God has chirotic moments just waiting for us. And when divine appointments arise in your life, don't miss them. We will be able to see these chirotic moments, these divine appointments, way better when we are walking in humility and trust. And God has them for you. Don't miss them. Don't miss them. Because they are some really cool moments that God has for us. Really cool moments. The fourth lesson he gives us is the lesson that I like to call through us. Because deeper faith desires the Lord to work through us and not just in us. What do I mean by that? Well, Elijah, everything up to this point, was ministering to him. The ravens, the water, and now he has the opportunity to encourage and bless 
someone else. Where God is working not just in him, not just for him, but through him. This is why I say that this Christian faith is, is not about us. Yes, like I said, God brings us salvation. He transforms us. But it's all about His glory, not our own. It's all about edifying and blessing others, not just expecting God to bless us. Our faith will be shown in our prayers. Are we praying for God to do stuff for us? Or are we praying for God to do things for others? Now, it's not selfish or bad to pray for God to, to do certain things in our lives for our children, for our families. That's not what I'm saying, but we need to, to track and monitor. Are we ever, ever praying for other people, or is it all about ourselves? We are called to be used for, by the Lord to bless the world. This is one of the things that the Israelites totally missed. God said to Abraham, I will give you the, a huge nation where you can't even count your number of descendants so that you can bless the world. Did you ever catch that? Go read back the covenant of what God said to Abraham. It wasn't just for him to have a, a nation built under the name of Abraham. It was to be a nation that would bless the world, and they didn't. They became insular. They did their own thing for their own selves kind of a reflection of the church, is it not? We're making the same mistakes that the Israelites made. We are to be used by the Lord. House, a, a wonderful Hebraic commentator, says, So far, God's miraculous powers have benefited the prophet. In the next few episodes, not just this moment, the Lord works miracles through Elijah, which establishes his status as a man of God. His title changes from just prophet to being a man of God because God is using him. He is allowing the Spirit to use him. Finally, the fifth lesson he gives us is the lesson of provision. Faith is deepened when we see the Lord's promised provision. House continues on the story of Elijah Elijah promises her that the flour and oil will not run out until the drought ends. This promise comes true, so the widow and her son are saved by this miraculous provision. If you look at this story, when the widow meets Elijah, she says, as surely as your God lives. Which means that he was not her God, but God provided and her whole life changed, as you see in the next episode where her son was raised to life, and there's a change in her view of who God is in her life. God's provision for her and for Elijah proved himself. It was a moment where her faith and his faith were deepened. It's like I had said before that as we reflect upon the promises that God has already fulfilled, it will encourage our faith to deepen. One of the most powerful aspects of evangelism today is not how much you know and how many things you can quote. It is your personal testimony of what God has already done in your life. When people see a person completely change, 
Man, that blows their mind, and they say, what happened to you? How did that happen? What, what did, what? I remember this is who you were, and now this is who you are. Only through Jesus Christ can that transpire. And it's important that we continue to reflect upon what God has done in our lives. We are to lead others through deeper faith by sharing our testimony. Yes, having a defense and an understanding of Scripture is vital. We live in a very, very Scripture illiterate world, which is sad. And Christians can't even wrap their mind around what Scripture really says because they don't read it. So I'm not saying it's not important, but what I am saying is that your story of transformation is vital to evangelism. Because people need to see and people need to hear what God has done in your life. And so I want you to to write this, this point down. And I want you to circle it and put exclamation points and stars on it. Because I think it's that important. We need to record, remember, and recite the promises he has kept and the prayers he has answered. Because if he has done it, he will do it again. And when I say record, write those things down. Get a uh, God-answered prayer journal or God-kept-his-promise journal or write it in your notes on your phone. As soon as God does something that he promised he would do, write it down and remember it, reflect upon it. But I also say recite it. As parents, this is one of the most important things that we can do for our children is recite to them the promises that God has kept and the answers to prayer that he has in our lives. I share with my kids the testimony of what has happened in my parents' life through the divorce and and the pain of what transpired. We recite those things so that our kids are encouraged in their faith. When they question and doubt and are frustrated, I can say, guys, listen, look at what the Lord has done. You don't know who we were as a family when all of this was happening, so you can't see the full transformation, but let us tell a little bit of the story to encourage your faith. So record, remember, and recite the promises he has kept and the prayers he has answered. Swindoll says this, You can't talk the talk if you've never walked the walk. You can't encourage somebody else to believe the improbable if you haven't believed the impossible. You can't light another's candle of hope if your torch of faith isn't burning. And so my challenge to you is to keep your testimony fresh and your torch burning. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to see ourselves in reflection through the story of Elijah. We know that you did this in Elijah's life, and his testimony is recorded for us to be encouraged and strengthened. I pray that we will walk in these lessons of deeper faith, And we will see ourselves and the people around us transformed. And this church and this community and this town changed. In your name, amen.